four button. I got it right. One, one out of three. I bet. And uh, we're going to go through it fairly quickly. Um, and the reason I'm going through Daniel is kind of twofold. Uh, first of all, uh, it's, it gives us a, a framework to understand, you know, we talked about this issue of church and state, and, and I could sit here and pontificate about, well, this is the right thing to do or that's the right thing to do. But I think it's best that we start from a biblical understanding of what church and state is. And I think from Daniel, we get that proper framework, which helps us understand how to answer the church and state question. So it may be we spend all our time in Daniel in order to get to church and state, but that's okay because that answer is better in Daniel than anything I could give you. But um, so that's one reason. The other reason is uh, it's just a, it just it helps I think to uh, you know I, as I go through Daniel with sort of a new lens, I can see Daniel as sort of you know each of the prophets brought a special emphasis on Christ and a, and a sort of a renewed pointing forward to that. But Daniel did it in a special way, particularly in a more prophetic way. So I'm using a few books here. You know, one of them is Edward Young's book on Daniel, another one is John Calvin's book on commentary on Calvin, and the other one is James Montgomery's Voices commentary on Calvin. And I'll try to pick up some others as I go here. But I'm primarily going to use Boyce here today because I found him to be most helpful in, in regard to getting this narrowed down. And our theme is really going to be, our, our approach is going to be whirlwind. I'm telling, we're going to try to do chapters 1 through 3 today, 4 through 6 next week. And then we, we, may, we may break this down, you know, 7 through 12, we may break into two weeks or whatever, whatever it takes to get through that. But uh, that's, that's the plan. And the, the, before I get into that, let me, just, let me just give you what I think of the three themes that I see in Daniel is that there is an eternal or everlasting righteousness kingdom And the point that I think and why those are important are that they give us, a, I think, some pretty good markers for understanding what the theme is. Picked the wrong one, didn't I? Okay. Kingdom and righteousness. And as I looked into this word everlasting and its use in Scripture, I was surprised to, to, to I noticed one thing very important. I looked up how, how you know, everlasting, kingdom, righteousness, whatever. These words are used both in the New and Old Testament with the eternal or typically of everlasting righteousness, kingdom, and life. And uh, there's also another word that's often used with everlasting, uh, you know, related to God himself, his glory, uh, but also um, his covenant. And I was surprised to see that there were 18, you know, when you talk about the everlasting covenant, which I think is a, is a summary word for all of these things, that in the Old Testament, an everlasting covenant shows up 18 times, and the New Testament one time. And I thought that was interesting. And often when it shows up in the Old Testament, it's a double, in one verse, it mentions it twice. And, and the same is true of this eternal righteousness, eternal king of eternal life, which I think are the themes that we'll find in each of these chapters uh, that are coming forth here. I would argue that, that what you have here is sort of like, you know, in the Old Testament you have a, a, a lot of emphasis on God the Father, or, or you know, on God himself, or, the, or, the, or, the, or the God and his, who, who is God? God the Father, uh, you know, God, all right? And in the New Testament you have a more clear, clear delineation of Christ as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think likewise, when we talk about what are the eternal aspects of this, in the Old Testament it was often portrayed as an eternal covenant. It's also portrayed that way in the New Covenant, in the, in, the, in the New Testament. But you have these ideas that are beginning to show up. Only in the book of Daniel do you find all three of these ideas, eternal life, or everlasting life, everlasting kingdom, everlasting righteousness, clearly laid out. I mean, spelled out. Okay, and, and you can almost say, gee, that's a pretty good theme for what I'm reading here. That's a pretty good summary of what the story is all about. And, and so, so that's, that's going to be my kind of framework here because 
If you look at Daniel this way, it keeps you from getting tied up into, well, Daniel said this and Daniel said that, or Daniel was talking about something that's going to happen in the future, or, or that Russia's going to fight Ukraine or whatever. You can get that out. I mean, you, you can get, maybe you can, okay? But I tell you what, you certainly can get this out of there. You certainly can get the idea of eternal rights, eternal kingdom, eternal life. And I would argue as we go through chapters 1 through 3 today, we'll see that that's a pretty good outline of what is that. And actually some of those words don't show up in all of those chapters, but you'll actually see those words show up in, in, uh, later on in Daniel in chapters 4 and, uh, and, 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 and 7. You see this eternal kingdom idea show up. In chapters uh, 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 9 and later, you see the eternal righteousness. And then in chapter 12, you see the words eternal life. But yet you'll see, the, you'll see the same kind of idea when it talks about eternal, you know, it's, it's like there. And, but let's start in Daniel. And James Montgomery's voice kind of gets us started on the right place here, I think, when we go to Daniel. And again, this is going to be a quick survey. And y'all are pretty familiar with the story of Daniel, I would think. But it's good to kind of refresh our memory of it. But it starts out here in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. And some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Well, to put it in context, in, in you know, 586, <clears throat> Jerusalem fell. But Daniel wasn't there. Daniel had already been taken into captivity earlier in, 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 the, in, the, early, in the late 700s, or 7, 7, I think 707, something like that. There was, a, there was an invasion by, by, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, and they took into Babylon, the, the, the royal seed, so to speak. They t- and they left, them, they left some on the throne, and then the ones on the throne were really kind of weak, and ultimately it fell. But Daniel was taken in this first lot with, with many of the royal seed, whoever that is, probably the nobles of the land. So by taking the nobles in the land sort of as a captivity or as a, you know, as a, as a, as a you know, sort of like a hostages in a way, but uh, the Babylonian culture was different than many other cultures. They sought to, to bring the different nations. They had seen how Assyria had utterly destroyed all the places they went to. And, and yet they ultimately destroyed Assyria. And they had a different idea. They wanted to assimilate uh, these various nations into their structure and use them. So they got the best and the brightest of every nation they had and put them into service in their own kingdom. And that's where we find Daniel. But what, what Boyce points out, I think it's very good. Notice where this starts. It, the emphasis, yeah, you know, he, he gave, you know, so, so basically they gave, Jerusalem gave Jehoiakim, okay, the king of Judah into his hand. So he gave him the king. But they carried, what did they carry? They carried the things from the temple and put them in the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God. And in a way, that's setting up this church-state thing. I mean, you, in a way, if you get where I'm coming from, that, that, the, that the church, the state wants to overwhelm, to be victorious over the church, to conquer them. And so you have in this context here the ultimate bottom of the, of the curve, okay, where the Christian nation, so to speak, has been defeated. Their, their goods, their symbols of worship, the symbols of, of, of authority, whatever the case may be, are in the hands of the Babylonians in their temple. And they're using them. They may have melted them down or reused them, but they're using them in their own worship. They're, they're really polluting them in many ways. Now, if you follow some people on church and state, Daniel's position should have been, oh, that can't happen. We can't have those people, uh, you know, taking the things from the house of God and, and uh, polluting them in such a way and using them to worship. But I just can't see that happening. Do you find Daniel saying that? Not at all. What you find Daniel doing is humbly submitting to the will of God because this judgment was from God and he knew it was from God. And, and so you have this different attitude of how you should behave. And again, you go to Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah makes it very clear that they, they are to, when they go into captivity, they are to, you know, basically uh, plant their seeds and live their life and, and you know, and, and basically submit to this authority. 
And, and so the question is, when do you submit? When do you not? Well, I, I, was, I would argue that Daniel is a prototypic example. He's in a way is a type of Christ, but he's also a type of the, the new Christian to come with the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so in a way, we see that image there in terms of how do you respond? What, what, what is your focus? Is your focus on, well, well, I am going to do this. I am going to make some great play. I am going to show these people. I am going to show. I'm going to proclaim how awful they are. I'm going to, you know, is that what he did? No, that's not what he did. He basically said, God, help me. Help, help bring about. So he looked to God for his deliverance and where he was here. So again, this first chapter, I've already given you my, my 30 cent outline, okay? Eternal righteousness. And, and you know, and then there's an eternal kingdom, eternal life, and I'm gonna go to my triangle, which 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 I know I beat to death sometimes. But you have but you have in the way, you have uh, the father here. Okay, you have the son, and you have the Holy Spirit. And I think what the Christian life is, is, it is we're patterned after the triune nation in who, what we're to be as Christians. You know, through, through Jesus Christ, we're justified. Through his Holy Spirit, we are sanctified. Okay? And through the Father, we are adopted. Okay? And, you know, and, and so if you take each of these and break them down into parts, we have, we have justification, according to our catechism, has two parts to it. It has the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. In other words, that's imputed to us. And yet you also have the forgiveness of sins. And yet that's exactly the same place where faith starts. So, so and over here, there is a sense of adoption in the literal technical sense that we're adopted, we become children of God, we have all the rights and privileges of God. But as God transforms our heart, we literally become sons of God. We become more in his image. We become... You know, we, we become like him and like Christ. We become in, in that way. He, and so, and, and likewise here, you know, we start with faith and, and obedience. And there's no condition. When you look at it from conditions, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's no condition that we can use. Yet there's also faith that's required of us. And faith requires repentance. So both two sides of the same coin. Forgiveness of sin, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is obedience. And what, what sanctification is, is this path between faith and obedience as that faith works out in our lives. So, so anyway, I kind of see this, this structure. But let me, let, me put a, let me overlay another structure on top of it, which I think comes from more like what Daniel is trying to get across here. Daniel didn't see all that in the clarity we see it today. He saw this as an everlasting <coughs> righteousness. An everlasting kingdom. And an everlasting life. Now, to put another dimension on this, I mean, you know, this is more the mind, the spirit, the will. This is more the will. This is more the heart. You know, where's our heart going? So in this first passage, we see where Daniel's heart is. It mentions where his heart is. He, he set his heart to basically obey God. That, that was a heart-driven thing. Yet it's will, yet will part of it. But a heart is more than that. A heart is not just you're making a will, I'm going to do this. No, I'm setting my heart here to let God bring about his purposes in the way he will and how we use his instruments. That's sort of a different framework, okay? And, and so, so anyway, I find this is a useful way to come about it. Okay, we have, and, and when, when we're when we are brought into uh, uh, through into the kingdom of God through effectual calling, God renews our mind. Okay, He renews our will. He renews our mind in the image. He renews our mind in the image of Christ. He renews our will to obey Him. He renews our heart, our obedience. He convicts us of our sin. Uh, and I, we're persuaded and able to follow him. So, so, so it's sort of a, a Christian. What is a Christian? We understand it better. But, but what we're seeing here is we're seeing the first place, the first book in Scripture, where you have these three ideas really clearly laid, except for one other place, and that's the book of Psalms. And as we go through here, as time goes out, I'll show you where these ideas come up in Psalms, and 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 you sort of see see the same idea. So. So what my answer to the right church and relationship is that 
The first answer is, we're not dealing with, it. when you think about the problem uh, in a temporal sense, a temporal church and a temporal state, is that the right way to look at the problem? No. We're an eternal church. We're an eternal kingdom of God. We're going to be here a lot longer than that state. As that state's going to come, it's going to go. The eternal kingdom of God is going to be here forever. Okay, it's everlasting. Okay, so we're not. So, so the problem is when we get sucked into that argument. If we let that argument look reduce it down to a temporal church and a temporal, what does a temporal church do? And what does a temporal state? We're losing the art. We're going to lose the battle from the start. We're missing the fundamental point that there's an everlasting kingdom. This is a church. This is an everlasting. Yeah, yeah. This building's going to go away. We're going to go to heaven. But there will still be a church on this earth. There will still be an everlasting kingdom of God as God brings about his purposes. That will still be here, okay? And, and they had tried to kill it over and over again. And, uh, and I'm trying to think. Du Bois had a good story here of, a, I think it was a Romanian uh, pastor that was brought in to the communists, and they were going, he was pretty sure they were going to kill him because that's what they'd been happening to the other people. And he went to the guy and he sat down at the table, and the guy started to tell him, he said, listen, your greatest, your greatest weapon is your ability to kill. My greatest weapon is the ability to be killed. Because if you kill me, I'm going to live. Okay, people are going to remember who I am. People are going to witness about this thing. And they're going to be on and And it's a pretty convincing argument. So, so in a way, God uses these purposes. God uses this, this persecution, these very difficult situations to bring about several people. So that's my framework. And my interpretive lens in this thing. So let's dive into the eternal righteousness. Okay. And so we start with, in chapter 1, we, we have, he was gifted in all wisdom. So first of all, I want to say that when I'm talking over here on the curve, it's not devoid of this. It's wisdom over here. These two things are an axis that lead to faith. Faith is really the sum of wisdom and, and, and heart together. Uh, the mind and heart together being devoted to God. I mean, it's not one or the other kind of Kind of, kind of false argument I'm making here in a way to try to reduce it to one. But in principle, I can argue it's more this than that. But the mind and, and the heart have to go together. The mind informs the heart, the heart informs the mind, and back and forth, the mind ultimately is the champion, and the will has to be there too. But what really makes a difference here is, and what we're seeing here, is this aspect of doing, okay? And in chapter, it goes through here. So they, they were gave the, they were brought the young men in there that were gifted in wisdom and possessing knowledge and quick to understand, had the ability to serve the king. That's what they were looking for. And they found such men in Daniel and his companions and others. And they, they had them there and they were going to give them the drinks of delicacy. And, you know, and they were going to train them so that they could serve before the king. So, you know, isn't this odd that they were going to train them to serve before the king? And the names were Daniel. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Typical Jewish names. And the chief of the unit renamed them Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they had new names. And again, the, when you look at these names, more boys follow through the arguments of these names, two of them had the word El in it. El is the Hebrew, is the Hebrew word for God in a generic sense. The other two had variations of the word Jehovah in them. So they were either saved by Jehovah or serves Jehovah or whatever. But their names were changed. They're going to be, uh, Abednego means servant of Nebo. Okay, you're going to be servant of Nebuchadnezzar and his God. You're, you're, you're now somebody else. So a name is an important thing. So the first thing they want to do is to change the words, to change the language, to change the... And we always, doesn't that sound a little familiar in the culture today? That word doesn't mean what we thought it meant. We're going we're gonna to use new words. You're no longer a mother. You're, you're an egg producer, okay? That's, that's what you are. You're, an, you're just an egg producer. How inane is that? I can't imagine. But, but that's, that's the way in our culture we can look at this. And then another point says, what you have here in Daniel... He uses. He says, "This is this is secular humanism." Okay, he's right. I mean, what 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 Nebuchadnezzar is? It's I I I I I. Look what I've done. Look what I've conquered. Look how great I am. Look at all I'm doing here. You know, and and, and we're gonna we're gonna be good, benevolent to you. I mean, it's sort of a sort of a false benevolence in a way to these people. We're going to change your name. I mean, don't worry about it. We're going to, you're going to eat well. You're going to eat great. But we, you have to have a little minor details. Your name won't be the same. I mean, you'll have to do this. You won't be able to worship your God. You know, little details. What does that matter? 
the secular humanism is what it is that we're seeing in display here. And this is the same battle we face today. They change the words. They change the names. They want to, they want to get control of the narrative. Okay. But it says here in chapter verse eight, and again, Boyce says this is this is the, you know one of the heart of the issue. But Daniel purposed his heart that he would not defile himself, you know, with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now, God has brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. Now, the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, "I fear my lord the king." who has appointed your, your food and wine. For why should you see your faces looking worse than your young men who are your age? Then you will endanger my head before the king. And so, you know, you have the argument that Daniel says, well, test me for 10 days, and there's a test, and, and you know, they come out looking great. Now, I don't think this is, a, this is a, a narrative against wine. I don't think that's the point. I think it's a narrative about obeying God in this sense of not letting these delicacies, not letting the name change, not being sucked into the culture. Uh, that's what I see the battle being here. Not something about wine or eating good food or anything like that. That's not the point. I mean, there may be a point there, but it's not the point, not the main point. So, you know, it says here in verse 15, at the end of 10 days, their features appear better and fatter in the flesh than the other young men. You know, and 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 so, uh, and in verse seventeen, as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in literature and wisdom. God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. God gave it to them. I mean, they may have learned something from the from the from the secular secular teachings they were getting, but God's the one that gave them insight into it. They probably had enough knowledge of the Word of God to be able to see the contrast and to understand it and, and to be a better polemic against what they're doing there. But but they had this knowledge. So, so this this heart doesn't doesn't focus, doesn't work apart from a mind and a will and a, a will and a mind and all that. I'll be all together. Okay, we're 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 united creatures. Okay, and so you know, and and, and he further says he had understandings of all visions and dreams. Now that's quite a gift to have. And we'll see that play out to his benefit. Now, at the end of those days, when the king said to, that they should be brought in, the chief of the units brought them in. And, and it says here in verse 19, the king interviewed them, and among them none were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Micah, and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king and in all matters of wisdom and understanding. About the king examining them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers. And, and you know, so... so they, they really, they really, they really, what by this act of faith, they put their life at risk, but nevertheless, God blessed it. And so I would argue this is about this eternal righteousness. It's kind of pointing forward this issue of righteousness. Now, okay, now let me build another point here. Okay, I've got my budget here on time here, and I'm not doing too great, but I'll do a little better. Okay, all right. Uh, let me talk about righteousness in a minute and and in a way you know are, are, are we righteous now do we have is our righteousness going to save us no okay but we're made in the image of Jesus Christ and and in that sense we God has created work from beginning but to do and in those things there is a righteousness it's God's doing all the work he created work from beginning world he made you who you are he provided those situations in life he brings the God the God gets all the glory all the kingdom from it Yet there is a righteousness that we're displaying. You know, on the other hand, this is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that we claim for our salvation. But that doesn't mean that there's not, you know, it, it doesn't mean that 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 there's there's not to be any righteousness in us or mirrors. It's like the moon. I mean, the moon shines because the sun shines on it. The moon isn't dark. I mean, there's something coming off the moon. It's not the moon's light. It's God's light reflecting off of that. So. So and when you when you say are we righteous, yes, in a reflective sense, we are righteous because we're basically like the moon, we're reflecting the light and the glory of God, and those things come about. But let me let me get into how does this relate to church and state? Let me get back to that argument because I'm trying to build an argument here. Because the a lot of the issue in church and state evolves around something called natural law. Okay. The natural law argument is that men are created by God in his image. Amen. Okay, 
We have a conscience. Amen. Romans tells us very well that we're without excuse. Amen. Okay, we ought to know what's right and wrong. Do we know what's right and wrong? We ought to know what's right and wrong. All men ought to know what's right and wrong. Okay. But let me just, and so, so there is what I'll call a natural, let me put it right here, natural law. Okay, in my little diagram here. That, that's the knowledge of right and wrong innately within us. Now, as we read the Word of God, the Word enlightens, builds that up, and strengthens us. So we have a better understanding of that natural law because we're, it's been, you know, because man has fallen and, and, and we have you know, sin within us and that sin has corrupted our understanding. And, and so within most men, there is a corrupt natural law, whereas in Christians, he's written the law in our hearts. There, there's an improved understanding that's there. Okay, but there's also a sense in which there's something called positive law. Did Adam get thrown out of the garden because he killed somebody? Or because he robbed somebody? Or because he committed adultery? Or whatever? No. He got thrown out of the garden because he disobeyed. In other words, this positive law. Don't eat of this tree. God said, don't eat of this tree. Okay, and yet Adam and Eve ate of that tree. Okay, they broke the positive law of God. The positive law is different than this natural law in that you can't, a natural, you, as a natural person, you can't figure it out. Could we have figured out? Could Adam have walked around and I, I can't eat of that tree? Could he have come, come? No. God told us positive law. God told him. So we as Christians, we have to obey both natural law, which is within our heart, because we have a conscience that we're there. That's true. But it's a renewed conscience in the image of Christ, because the law is written in our heart. But we also have to obey the positive law of God. But the problem with the church-state argument is a lot of people use this natural law to say, well, you know, they take it to such an extreme. And, and I'm not going to get into it here, but, but the argument really boils down to, well, the church, the state is governed entirely by natural law, and the church is governed entirely by positive law, and therefore they have two different Well, that's really not true. These Ten Commandments apply to us as well, do they not? And we're, we're, we're a whole person. And likewise, God revealed us. Does that reveal will of God have nothing to do with the state? I would argue that's, a, that's an important question. Okay, so I'm, I'm not going to get into that here, but I want to point out here that what we have in Daniel is we have an image of this pure righteousness that we're supposed to have. And yes, there is something innate in Daniel, but he has a renewed will. God has enabled his will. God has renewed his mind. Uh, God has, has renewed his heart and, and written the law in his heart. So he is a different person. It comes about it in a different way. So when we go about this church-state relation, it's easy to get caught in this trap. So I'm looking at it. The reason I'm going through this is if you look at it as a temporal issue, if you reduce it down to a temporal or a time-based kind of argument of where we are today, what do we do in this world today? No, we need to elevate the argument to, an, to a kingdom's perspective and understanding from the viewpoint of this everlasting righteousness, everlasting life, and everlasting kingdom that's here. And in a way, I think, as I said before, in the Old Testament, you'll see the idea of an everlasting covenant show up 18 times in the New Testament one, but in the New Testament, how many, how many places do you think it talks about everlasting life? A lot. Particularly in John. I mean, there are like you know, eight or nine places in John alone where that's mentioned, Okay. And, and so it's very common. Or like everlasting righteousness. We'll go through some of those in everlasting kingdom. So uh, these things are mentioned in the New Testament as well. And to me, what they're doing is this is, a, this is a Daniel didn't see it clearly. He didn't quite see who Christ was, but he understood the work and nature of Christ and the kingdom of God in a way that was, was revolutionary at the time. Okay? So that's the first chapter. And so, so you have this change in who they were. Now you'd think this would set them in the catbird seat forever, but it did not. So we go into chapter 2 in Daniel. And we look in chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Okay, and, and, and his spirit was tro so troubled that his sleep left him. And the king gave the command to all the magicians, and he said, you know, come before me. Have a dream. My spirit is anxious. I want to know the dream. And then the Chaldean says, Oh, live forever, O king, but tell your servant what the dream is. He said, oh, no, Not the way this is going to work. Okay. You're going to have to tell me the dream, and then I'll have, then I'll have some sense of that you're going you're gonna to know the interpretation. You know, I know you guys. I know what you're going to do. You're going to make it into all kinds of things. But if you could tell me the dream, I mean, you know, anyway, you kind of get his motivation here. And they answered and said, Let the, the king tell, kill his, tell his servants the dream. 
and we were given an interpretation. And he answered, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. So he'd made his mind up. If you do not make known the dream to me, there, there is only one decree for you. And what that decree is, is he's going to kill them. And basically, they, he's going to wipe them all off the face of the earth. He's going to kill them all. And the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can tell the king this matter. Therefore, uh, therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such thing of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other that can tell us the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with the flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious. So the king's decree went out in verse um, uh, 13, that he was going to basically kill all his wise men. And I, I would assume that would include Daniel and his companions as well. And they saw them. I mean, they were actually coming to kill them. Then the counsel and wisdom of Daniel uh, uh, answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, uh, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? And Arioch, you know, explained it to him. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might be able to tell him his interpretation. So, and, and in his explanation in verse, in verse 18, that they might seek, you know, he and his companions made a decision, they were committed, that they might seek mercies from God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish from the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then, with the rest of the then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So here, here, not just he prays, but the Christians are committed together in prayer. So there's power in two or three pray together. Well, this is a good example of it. You know, Daniel and his associates were all praying. They realized this was a matter of life and death. They urged and pleaded before God. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Okay, here's the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. His, he removes kings and praises and, and, and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my Father. You have given me wisdom and might. You have now made known to me what was asked of you. That was asked of you. And you have made known to us the king's demand. You know, and so, and he went into the king, you know, and basically told him the dream. And y'all are familiar with the dream. The dream was a vision of, 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 of a man with a golden head, you know. And then as he went down the body, it, it, turned, to, uh, it turned from silver to bronze and then to iron. And uh, the bottom part of the body was iron and the feet were a mixture of clay. And, and now, we know as Daniel kind of illuminates here, these are going to be kingdoms. And we know in history that, you know, that, 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 that the gold kingdom, Daniel himself says, that is going to be you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the gold head. You know, talk about giving somebody a swelled head. I mean, your head's made of gold. I mean, you're, you're, the, you're the top. You're the, very, you're the very leading visible thing here, the most, given the most uh, visible accolades in this image here. You know, and we know later that the, that the uh, silver was the... Uh, was the Median and Persian Empire, and the bronze was the Greek, and then the Roman was the iron and the clay feet. Okay, and um, so so we have, but we have what happens in this dream of that, that's there. There's one other thing in the dream, is that then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like shaft before the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now we know what that is. That's Jesus Christ. That, that is his church. That is his kingdom. Okay? That is an eternal kingdom that's there. This is the dream. We will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are you you, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And whatever the children of man dwell on the on and, and dwell or the beast of the fields and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them. You are this head of gold. So he starts out there and then he explains the, 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 the places in time. 
and then it gets down here and um, you know then it gets down here and uh, let me go down to verse 43 and you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay and they will mingle with the seed of men but they will not adhere to one another just as the iron does not mix with clay and in those days of these of, of these kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left in other shall kingdom shall not be left to other people it shall break into pieces and consume all the kingdoms and it shall stand forever so you have this eternal kingdom or everlasting kingdom Inasmuch as you saw this stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and broke into pieces of iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God is made known to the king who come to pass in this. And the dream was certain, and the interpretation is sure. And King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel and the commanders that they should present an offering and an incense to him. And the king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and the revealer of secrets. And he made that Daniel chief administrator and made him the gate to the king. So here we have, isn't this an odd change of events? You have the, start, the story starts in chapter 1 with the things of God being in captivity in the enemy's house of God. And rather than do a frontal assault on all of that and get into all of this rhetoric and say, well, we can't have this. We, you know, that's just not allowed. We can't let this happen. We, you know, we've, got to, we've got to become kamikazes or whatever. That's not Daniel's attitude. He waits on God to bring about deliverance. And look how majestically God brings about deliverance. He brings about his everlasting righteousness that was mirrored in Daniel, a, a type of Christ. He brings about this everlasting kingdom, which is sown here. And he's doing it today. He's doing that in Russia, in China, in every place they persecute Christians today, and in America probably before too long, if not already. He's going to do the same thing over and over again. This is the way God works. He brings about his purposes by, from total defeat to total victory. And this was it's a matter of a few weeks probably, or whatever, a few years at the most, that, that this story took place. Yet it isn't all over. I mean, you know, even though it thinks, you know, look how this story goes. It goes from the bottom of the hill to the top of the hill, bottom of the hill to the top of the hill. Daniel's life isn't just one big pathway, that rosy little road up the mountain. It's a lot of these battles that he has to fight along the way. And every new battle brings a new battle. You would think that the king would get the message before too long, wouldn't you? But there's, there's, there's four more of these to go, okay, before we get to the, to the more prophetic part. And so we have here uh, the image of gold. And so... Um, the king made, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, and basically he said here in, in verse, uh, verse uh, somewhere near the end of my verse here, I'm trying to find the verse number four, I guess. Uh, trying to see where four starts. Uh, somebody find where four starts and read it for us. Chapter three, verse four. Then a herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, fire, and psalter, and in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship in the gold image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of the Okay, so we have the fiery purpose. Okay, and so the decree was to all the people. Daniel of them said, "No, we're not going to do that." Uh, you know, you know the story here. Uh, you know, uh, the Jews who were who, the, verse twelve, and then the certain Jews who have were set over the affairs of the provinces of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They have not. They have not served your gods or worshiped the gold image which you have set up. So they're couching a pejorative argument against Christians in terms of the light of what their secular culture requires them to worship. Okay, And so, yeah, they failed in that measure. measure okay, But that same argument is taking place over and over and over again in Christians. Okay, And in Christianity struggle. Then Nebuchadnezzar in his raging fury gave the command to bring Shadrach and you know, and you know the story, you know that they basically, they do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I set up, and therefore he's going to throw them in a fiery furnace. You know about the men who were, who, the fire was so hot that it killed several men throwing them in there. You know, and, and in our case, you know, they said, and in verse 17, if that is the case, 
our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So they basically are saying, we're not going to do this. We're, we are not going to obey. We, we follow God, not man. Okay, that's another rule we need to know in this church and state relationship. Follow God rather than man. And then there's fiery trial. You know the story. They're cast in the furnace. And then in verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to the counselors, Did we not cast three men into the furnace in the midst of the fire? And before then, he would have noticed there were four men. Okay, so here, the, here there's a four people in the fire that cast in three. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. So here is most likely Jesus Christ himself in a theotomic form, present, uh, witnessing with and staying with his Christians, okay, and, and witnessing for them and protecting them uh, from the harm that was intended upon them. And, you know, Nebuchadnezzar ultimately, when he sees this, he says in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke to them saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who sent you to his angels, uh, and delivered his servants, okay? And he promoted them, okay, uh, you know, throughout all the prophets of the next. So that's chapter 3. So here we have fourfold. We have the eternal righteousness set up in Daniel, the illustration of Daniel not wanting to partake of those delicacies. He set his heart to obey God. We have the everlasting kingdom showing forth where they were persecuted. They were threatened with death, yet they would not submit they, would, they were insistent upon being God rather than man. You have the everlasting kingdom uh, coming forth in their illustration of their life. And you have the everlasting life. The, the Jesus Christ himself is that life. He is bringing forth the life to them, okay? And, and again, if you go back to verse 9, they spoke, you know, this is what the people, Chaldeans, were saying to the king. They spoke and said to the king, Oh, live forever. Oh, you, oh, you, O king, have made a decree. Okay, he, you know, here the king is the one that they say is going to live forever. No. Jesus Christ is going to live forever. Okay? People, the secular humanism thinks it lives forever. That It doesn't. Okay? Only God lives forever. So what I'm trying to point out here, and I'll go to some biblical illustrations in the time i got left. I'll do that this time. But, but the point I want to make is that this is the key to how to deal with the church. And don't get sucked in an argument that it's two equal temporal issues that are, that are debating or fighting. It's not. One is eternal. We're in an eternal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. We have an eternal right, everlasting righteousness that lives far beyond us, that comes the power and strength that comes from Christ himself. We pay for it on the cross through his perfect obedience. We have an everlasting life because Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. He will ultimately resurrect us yeah, despite being, we will all probably die before that happens. We don't know, maybe it won't. Okay, but we'll have an everlasting life with him. These things are the, what, what our minds should dwell on as we are struck with these issues of trying to, and we ought not get caught in this battle. And again, I repeat, it's so tempting to go to the state and say, oh, government, you should not do this. Okay, don't do this. Okay, and yeah, we're required to witness there. But you get the point. It isn't the main focus. God's going to take care of that issue over there. The main focus is for us to have our heart right, to have our mind right, and to have our will right as it's been renewed in the image of Christ and to move forward. And yes, there is positive law that we've got to obey. There's also natural law. So, so both are important, but you can't put this over to the side and say, well, natural law says I can do this or that. Therefore, irregardless of what God said in, in His positive law, I can ignore that because natural law says this. So... I'm trying to set that up because as we get into this church and state argument, some people want to put this natural law in such a prominent place. Where's the positive law? Where did it go? I mean, you know, is it underneath the shell? Is it hidden over here? It's nowhere to be found. Okay. So the point I'm getting to is the, God's law is important, but it's, He also gave you a conscience. He gave everybody in the world a conscience. Okay. And so that's all important. So let's kind of look at this again, Scripture. So I started this by saying, let me repeat, in the Old Testament. We see the words everlasting covenant show up 18 times, but only one time in the New Testament does everlasting covenant show up. Okay. I think the idea of an everlasting covenant is still there. 
you know, you see the idea of a covenant, certainly there. I don't, that's not the point I'm trying to get to. But we have a better understanding of that covenant being brought out in the work of Jesus Christ, the Holy, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, and the Father in us to bring us into His kingdom. We see that more clearly present than ever. And when we look in the New Testament, you know, do a little word search here. You'll find eternal life or everlasting life show up quite a bit. Let me tell you what the second most important. What, there are some other things like there's everlasting glory, whatever, you know, whatever. There's some other things that are everlasting. But I did a word count. The next most, most, most common word was something like everlasting death or everlasting judgment. Okay? Yes, there are other things that are everlasting, but, the, but everlasting life is the most prominent one by, by a long shot. And then there's a close, I don't even say a close second, but a distant second, which is everlasting death or judgment. And then there's, yes, there are some other things that are everlasting. Uh, okay, and there's also an everlasting righteousness that's mentioned. There's an everlasting kingdom that's mentioned, both in the New Testament and the Old. So those things are still there. I'm not saying they're not there. But we see these in the life and name of Jesus Christ. Let us just let's just look at some key. Let me just before, before I get into the Bible, let me let me just forgive me. I got to get to a couple of rabbit trails, but I think they're important. I, I think John remember a little voice didn't have all his theology right and some of the some of the prophetic things, but most of it he did. But I think he really points out that when you look at this eternal kingdom, that is a great argument against dispensationalism. Okay, dispensationalism looks. Oh no, there are this kingdom here, and then there's this kingdom here. There's this. No, there is an eternal kingdom. Okay, there's an everlasting kingdom. This is a common story that goes throughout all of Scripture. Okay, and and so you know he points this out very clearly that, that dispensationalism looks at looks at Daniel to come up with a lot of their arguments about well this is going to happen in the future or that's going to happen in the future. No, it, it's an everlasting kingdom. It's, let me ask. You, is a thousand years everlasting? No. Okay. A thousand years, whether it's, whether it's a thousand years or meant to be figured with a long length of time, neither one of those are everlasting. That can't be talking about a thousand years. That can't be talking about uh, some sort of temporal thing. We're talking about an everlasting. The main subject is not Jerusalem, not some kind of this, that, or the main subject is an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting righteousness, an everlasting life. And as we go through here, I'll show you next week as we go through, we'll look at it, and we'll see the same three arc three elements show up again in chapters four through six. Why don't you read them as I'm working, look through there, and try to make your judgment here, and we can argue that. And then in chapter seven through nine, the prophetic part, these words actually appear in those chapters. Okay, let's let's do a little let's do a little let's do a little little reconnaissance in force here on the Bible here. Let's go back to everlasting righteousness, and let's look at Psalm. 103. Okay, verse 17. But the mercy of God is is everlasting to everlasting, and those who fear, fear Him and His righteousness to His children's children, and to such that keep His covenant, and those who remember to do His commandments. So again, there is an everlasting righteousness implied here that, that, that's part of this kingdom. This one of the properties of this kingdom is that as for a man, his days are like grass, as flowers in the field, and restart verse 15. And for the wind passes over and is gone, and in its place, remember no more. But the mercy of God is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children, to such that keep his covenant, those who remember his name. Then in verse 119, Chapter 119, we have some double reference. As I mentioned before, these words often show up in double double, double, double times here. And in, ch- in chapter, in, in the section uh, under, under Tazdik, which is righteousness, and that, and that letter of the Hebrew alphabet underneath there in chapter 137, uh, uh, chapter 119, verses 137 through 164, we, 144, we have this eternal righteousness. Righteousness are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies, which you have commanded, are righteousness and are very faithful. My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. Your words are very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. 
The troubles of anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delight. Your righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. So you have that. Then you have, um, uh, I can't see the verse I wrote down here, but I'm sure we got enough to look at over there. But anyway, elsewhere there, this shows up again. Okay, so that, that's the everlasting righteousness. And again, that gives you, if you want a commentary on chapter 1 of Daniel, it's, it's this. It's, you know, we're, we're, we're set apart as a people of God. There's an everlasting righteousness that's there, you know, and, and we're to serve God and obey His law. Yes, there's natural law. Yes, it's within our heart. But this positive law, this, this work of the Holy Spirit of renewing our will and mind and heart, the positive law also plays a big part in, in how do we how do we do this. Now we can't we can't obey we can't do this we, even if we want to. It's not a condition. The positive law is not a condition of us earning salvation, but nonetheless, it's important. Daniel was thrown out of the garden for it. Okay, he, it, you know it was it was a result of death. I mean, so it it, it 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 it's very important. Okay, let's go now to the eternal kingdom. Let's go to Psalm one forty five thirteen. Okay, I'm going to start at verse 10. And your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. You shall speak at the gates of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and his glorious majesty and to his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So here we have an everlasting kingdom. So Psalms is this other place where you have these ideas show up. Well, so Daniel didn't necessarily invent them. He was just just steeped in Psalms, and they jumped out to him. And they, and you know, these ideas were. You won't find all these words. I'm not trying to say that, but I think you'll find these themes very clearly there, and very clearly evident. So you have also in First Peter, eleven. Jump ahead in the New Testament. Peter 11. That must not be the right verse. My apologies. And the second Peter 11. Look over here. Yeah, second Peter 11. Second Peter 10. <laughs> Therefore, beloved, be more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So, <clears throat> so that doesn't imply that we, that we earn our salvation by doing. But it does imply that doing and, and, and paying attention and being diligent about our call and election as Daniel was Having, having our heart set towards that is an essential part of who we are. And it brings about these things abundantly. It will be supplied to you abundantly. Okay, can you not say that they were supplied to Daniel abundantly? Yes, they were. Okay. So that, that's the everlasting kingdom. We'll see more of that. And then the, the uh, image of God. Let's go to... <coughs> in, in shortness of time, let's go to... Romans 5.21. And start at verse 18. Therefore, as though one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man disobedience, many were made sinners, and also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. Okay, we find a verse here. Moreover, the law entered the offense, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace 
might reign through righteousness to eternal life through our Jesus Christ our Lord. So this kind of puts it all together. That, that, that yes, we're sinners. We're, we are saved by grace, and that grace abounds in us. And Jesus is our, our example, our prototype. is only possible through his active obedience and passive obedience and suffering on the cross, his active obedience and obeying the law. But and sin reigned in death. Yet, even so, grace may reign through righteousness to eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this eternal life righteousness leads to eternal life and, and works in an eternal kingdom. So we could go more and more and more here, but it's interesting how these words and our ideas show up again and again. And my challenge to you homework is read 4 through 6, and we'll talk about that next week. Any discussion here? Best is a cheap imitation, and yeah. not even not even a real imitation. Yeah. One thing that I see that Satan's plan hasn't changed since the beginning, because the kingdom is what the kingdom of God. Right. And as you said, secular humanism, Nebuchadnezzar—they all substitute what they break. They break God's commandment to start with: "Thou shalt have no other gods before me." What does man continue to do? He elevates himself, he elevates whatever happens, secular humanism, whatever it happens to be, everything still gets put before God. So how can you even be in the kingdom to start with if Christ is not your king and your God? Amen. It can't be. It can't be. And yet, is that not the same pattern throughout history that man right. continues to repeat as he elevates himself under right. different reasons, right. but still back to that, you can't have anybody support me. If you, if you can't get past that, if you break that, everything else is Amen. gone. Amen. So, you know, that everlasting kingdom, as you said, it has to start with the with Christ being the center. Amen. Which means no other gods, no Amen. one else. Elevated. I wish I had time, and next week I'll start with this, but James Montgomery has some in, interesting commentary on this, on this point here. Which is this righteousness, and he has from J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop who is well quoted, well, well, well worthy to be read. Anyway, he talks about uh, you know what this really means to Christians, and I'll start summarizing that next week and pick this up. Any other comments here? Let's go, to Lord, in prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, as we think about this issue of church and state, let us ground ourselves first in Your Word. Let us ground ourselves in the example of your saints. Let us see that to fight this kingdom and as if we were knights charging forth on horses is like Don Quixote fighting windmills. Lord, it isn't your way. Your way is through your work, your time, your glory, your people, their suffering, the work and obedience of Jesus Christ that made that possible. Help us, Lord, to keep our focus and not get dragged down into a false understanding of this argument to a false understanding that, that, that this natural law within us, even though it guides and is there and is important, and I don't mean to diminish it, it came from you. It's your very image, oh Lord. 
but has been defaced by sin, to not let that govern our obedience to you. Let us be obedient per your word. In Jesus' name, amen.